0: We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldkamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today we're going to talk about a couple of things. Some might be actually too much detail for some, but I'll try to put it like I hope that you think that I always do into simpler terms so you can understand some of the bigger, uh, more complicated explanations. And by the way, when I say more complicated, in no way does it mean that, oh, I'm the one that understands this and you don't, you know, in some sort of condescending way. No, I find that everything is complicated when you don't understand it. So if I was talking to a plumber, I'd be lost after the first sentence. If I was talking to a, a another kind of physician, I could easily get lost as they get into the details of their work and their specialty. So I hope you take it at that at, at, in that perspective. So I, I think it's a gift to anybody, teacher, plumber, rancher, dairy farmer, marine biologist, they can take the details and you say, these are, see these different numbers here? See how they're important? And then put them into a context that you can grasp why they're important, not just because that person says that they are. Okay. <clears throat> so just when I say these things that could come across as condescending. So it's been about two years since this podcast has been going on. And in the course of that time, obviously, I've interviewed a lot of people, and I hope you've enjoyed that. I've learned a lot. Uh, We got to meet these people. Usually, I've seen a couple of their presentations at various conferences, and we've talked. And then, and that's how I was lucky enough to be able to know them well enough to ask them to be on the podcast. So we've learned a lot. Is the point. So now there's another sort of wave of issues that are coming up. Maybe not so technical initially. This first part of this. Uh, podcast, but they're interesting concepts to consider. So I'm just gonna jump in and these are I would call them controversies in keto. It's not like they're really you know knives and forks and people um, calling each other out. no, it's a polite disagreement um, among people who have a lot of experience and so if somebody has a lot of experience, physician preferred, so we got the blood work and everything else. But non-physicians, there's plenty of people who have been on keto that are not physicians, not even certified nutritionists of any sort, but they've been on keto and they can say, this is how my life has changed. And these are my labs that have changed. And consequently, their following has gotten to be so large that they have an authority of what it is they're talking about. So I appreciate listening to those perspectives as well. So I just got through watching a couple of presentations from some such people. One is a person who does a lot of cookbooks. And so the question is, this person's now pretty much a carnivore, so I like that too, because that's pretty much what we are. And it's the issue of, so once you're carnivore, you're basically saying hardly any veggies at all. Not only no carbs, really, there's nothing left. So if you're really a carnivore, you're not having any veggies. So within the 20 grams or so of carbs per day, some carnivores say, I have some broccoli or whatever else. Certainly not going to be a lot of broccoli, but they've just let go of all these things. And so one thing about being carnivore, and I'm not here to convince you about being carnivore. I'm here to explain there's certain advantages from my perspective and listening to others that is really presented in one clean sweep something that I I spent decades doing with patients. And what that is, when patients would come in and say, this is my issue, whether it's uh, GYN, uh, menopause, PMS, PCOS, uh, or if it's joint pain, or if it's men coming in for back pain and so on and so forth, you'd have to look at their diet and you'd have to pull things out. But the top piece that you would look at would be looking at what kind of foods they eat in terms of are they eating whole foods or not, right? So are they actually going to the grocery store, buying that, bringing it home, and cooking it at home? That's the whole food scenario stripped down. And in that, the division is are they buying organic or not? I'm not trying to be a snob here. I'm trying to say that non-organic veggies have a lot of pesticides and herbicides on them. In fact, you can look up, you know, Environmental Working Group, uh, the Dirty Dozen, and the Clean 15, as they call it, and they've been around since I would give every patient the link to that, probably since the early two thousands, whenever uh environmental working group got started. They've become a political force since then. But you know, they would did this huge survey across the country of all the vegetables and produce in the country, and they would bring it back and test it and they'd rank it. Each year they would do that. That's a lot of work. Pretty neat though. But then they would say, This is what we found on your average broccoli, or on your average uh, blueberry, uh, of your non organic, and of your average. And so you, they would give a ranking, which is the most contaminated, meaning which had the most pesticides and herbicides contaminants. And then they would say, Of the contaminants we found, these are the ones we found. And these are the effects. This is what that thing does. And these are the effects that it's caused in, it might reference studies, so therefore in mice and rats. And it might reference whatever data there is in humans. So absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So back to carnivore, is like when you're saying, let's oh, not do veggies. First of all, for anybody who hasn't even thought about carnivore, they're going to go, seriously? Well, on the very simplistic, superficial even, side of looking at things is that you no longer have to tell people about pesticides and herbicides because they're not going to eat that. So the whole idea of organic or not, oh gosh, it's such a, it's such a overflogged horse of a topic that you go, thank goodness, I don't have to do this for the, like the 15,000 time explaining the difference in that and telling all about what I've just told you in environmental working group. So that's the one thing. The other thing you get by being carnivore and saying, hey, veggies, they're a thing of the past. Is that, and we've talked about this lightly, and it usually it only came up in uh, my practice and talking with cancer patients primarily, to go this deep. And that is the anti-nutrients that are in veggies. And you can look up, there's rankings. So you look at the phytates, you look at the oxalates, and you look at the lignans. And so these are the things that bind uh, various nutrients. So they don't ever actually get out of the what you're eating and into you. Now, in all fairness, our ancestors weren't stupid about this. You know, they knew that, well, in order to get legumes out, you would let beans soak for a while, and so you would never just cook raw beans up directly. They would be soaked for overnight or something. So that's why you soak beans is to get, and you toss that water out of beans, for instance. I don't know the treatment for all of these. Um, Oxalates wasn't so much addressed, but it's very high in a lot of dark green leafy vegetables like kale, like spinach, and these can and do cause kidney problems. In essence, they're little pieces of glass that sort of just eh, gradually start to destroy your glomeruli in your kidneys. Very fine tubules, right? That filter out things. They filter out what's going out with the urine and what's going to let pass back into the blood system. So that's a big deal. So it can start various kinds. That's why your kidney stones are called the various kinds of oxalate kidney stones. You go calcium oxalate kidney stone, magnesium oxalate kidney stones. Anyway, so that's why that's even mentioned, because it's wrapped up and tied to the oxalates bound these things, these nutrients, and started plugging up your kidneys. Then you got the kidney stones. So phytates are a whole nother thing. So anyway, you you now have these things that when we hear about how healthy some of these veggies are, and we have that list, you can Google anything and say, these are the nutrients in kale. These are the nutrients in carrots or beets and so on. Some of them, anyway, they're superfoods, right? Well, what you have to do is you take that list, call that a number. It's, It's 15, 15 goodies in there. Well, then you have to put a subtraction under, you know, what does it have? What does that veggie have? plant we're about to eat have in terms of lignins, phytates, and oxalates. And that's sort of a subtraction. So the nutrition that is often hailed as in this veggie is not something that you receive. It's, it's, you know, subtract this other stuff and the net is what you will get and it will benefit from you. Anyway, these problems, these three anti-nutrients, we'll call them, are something you don't have to consider. So your carnivore That goes away as well. But those kind of, the oxalates, the phytates, and the lignants, they do cause gastrointestinal stress. You will feel that. Some people, after they eat veggies, you know, whether it's a salad or marinated spinach or kale, they'll feel, ah, really, it tasted great, but I just don't feel great. And they just sort of accepted that as that's part of the digestive system. Also, you know your your big word microbiome—that is the bacteria, the viruses, the archaea, the whole stew of what ends up being your feces, right? And it's a living organism. They one of the inside references to talking about microbiome. They say microbiome is the only organ in your body that changes every day. In other words, it's determined by the diet you eat. The things that you comes into your mouth, goes into your stomach, goes into your small intestine, etc., and gets worked on. That that's what calls up the various kinds of not just bacteria, but the viruses and the archaea to digest these things. So you get habituated by the diet you eat to asking for those particular microorganisms to come and help you digest. When you change your diet, certain Populations are no longer needed, right? We don't need to digest certainly carbohydrates if we're not doing carbs or low carbs. They all kind of disappear. That is, they're there in the background, but their numbers totally almost disappear. So, when somebody does have a salad, especially what they call the brassicas, the brassicas are the kale and the broccoli and the cauliflower, and I'm probably missing a few, but you get my the kohlrabi and so on. Is that they'll then have this at another time. and I'm not saying there's not good things to have in these plants, but suddenly they go, gosh, this didn't, my, my gut is just not feeling comfortable after something I used to have a couple of years ago. Well, it's because you have stopped having that. Those particular parts of your microbiome has kind of been dormant or minimally helpful. They're still there. They can still be measured, but they've now have receded. And another various divisions of these things have come up to um, help you digest the proteins, the meats, and the organ meats, and the fish, and the fats that you're now having. So it's a whole different set. So when you suddenly have something you don't usually have, you've caught your system unaware, and you'll feel uncomfortable. And the other thing is, um, the veggies tend to ferment in your gut. So that bloated feeling, I'm not saying everybody feels this way. If you're a vegetarian, I don't know how that would feel. It's been a long time ago since I was a vegetarian. But if you're a vegetarian, maybe your gut has been more habituated to feeling this way and having those various resources, you know, at the ready to do this. But veggies for the most part ferment in your gut. And so how do they know that? Will they compare your gut, your small intestine versus your large intestine, your cecum in particular, so when they say, well, what is the human cecum, which is, cecum's the, the uh, last part of your small intestine for the most part. So ends up that our cecum, our gut, is more like that of carnivores, specifically a lion. Is a lion like a tiger? I'm pretty sure they're kind of identical. Yet, and it's not like a baboon. It's not like an ape that actually eats a lot of You know, we hear about the the big ape, they eat a lot of veggies. And so it's interesting, their gut is different. So that's part of the argument that is used to say that, you know, humans are actually meant to be carnivores because look at how they digest things. They are more prepared to digest meats and organ meats and a high fat diet than they are veggies and fruits. forgot about fruits. So there's that. That's where that argument goes. And I think it has a lot of legitimacy in that. And uh, it's an interesting perspective to have. And so how we got our digestive system speaks of evolution. It didn't just happen and it won't just change over a hundred years. It's thousands of years. It's millennia, many millennia actually, right? So there is that. So in all this thinking that for the sake of this conversation, I hope I've convinced you that there is a, I'll say overwhelming predisposition that humans should be carnivores. It's no longer my prejudice. I know I feel definitely better and on, on carnivore. And let me give you a little bit of a segue, an example. We went to a conference a couple of weeks ago in San Diego, and we just didn't do a lot of, oh, I'm going to bring some special oils. We just packed small and did a carry-on. So we got off the plane with our, our clothes that were there for the conference. And so consequently, because it was carry-on, we couldn't put any oils or anything in it with us. No mayo. No mayo. The world without mayo. So we just went with what we could have there with focusing on meat. So when you'd have a salad with your dinner that you bought, I would have that. I was bloated for a day or two, and I just had a small little side cup, we'll call it, of coleslaw one night and a very small side salad. And that was the extent of my Veggies for the weekend, three day weekend. And I felt bloated for two days. And I thought, wow, that was a slap in the face. So that made me wake up to, you know, putting a demand on my gut that I wasn't prepared to do. And makes me a little more willing to buy in to the idea that our ancestors were more carnivorous than they were herbivorous or, e- or even omnivorous. So there's that. Still haven't come to my point still working you there. So uh, the point is, and the and the, I won't say it's the controversy, but it's a point of disagreement. And I've heard this by a, a number of people. I certainly was true when I was up to at Duke with Dr. Westman, and I've heard other presentations about this. And so the issue is this. So whether it's carnivore or not, just in the realm of keto. So keto is low-carb, high-fat and moderate protein. So let's just start with there. We're all agreement about that, carnivore or not. It's that, well, if you're here for weight loss, which is 95% of the people who come to keto for, is for weight loss, or 99. So are you going to tell that person, or if you are that person, are you going to have to increase all the fat? Because clearly it's going to be an increased high fat and low carb and moderate protein. Are you going to increase all that fat? Or are you going to believe that, heck, once you're keto adapted, right, once you're fat adapted, once your body can conveniently, and you sort of have to wake that system up as well, just like your microbiome in a sense, you have to wake up the system, you have to transform your metabolism to be able to be efficient again at burning fats and making ketones, all three of them, that, well, you know, if you're overweight by a lot or you're obese, like, um, one of the groups I'm working with now, it's a group of obese men that they should have plenty of fat, right? So let's not worry about fat. Let's just say, get your protein in and keep your carbs under 20 grams a day. All right. Don't worry about your fat. If you want some fat, have some fat, but don't worry about, oh my gosh, I need all these extra calories of fat. I have to go have a stick of butter. I have to go have four more scoops of mayo. I have to have some C8 or whatever. Well. I like that. It's a it's a nice it's a nice clean mechanistic way of looking at keto. Hey, I'll be really crude here. You're a fat person, meaning you have plenty of fat on you. And that's a big reserve, and now that you've become metabolically efficient at burning fats, just burn that. I totally if I was didn't have any experience in my own life and working with people now, and a lot of people that I would totally buy that. Sounds, sounds good to me. You know, usually the, the simplest answer is the best, you know, Occam's Razor kind of thing. Well, having gone through a number of coaching programs and having the privilege of, uh, when you're on Chronometer, that's the tracking app that we ask people to track because I can look in at what they're doing is that I get to look at various correlations, you know, so I get to how much especially after they've been putting in their data a month or two, then I can go back and say, okay, if they've lost 50 pounds, what is that most correlated to? Is it their carbs? Is it their their exercise? Is it their fat? Is it their protein intake? Is it their, they can even go right down to various constituents. Is it their, if they're plugging in their glucose levels, you know, does it have to do with their glucose levels? I look forward to the convenience of having insulin levels in there. That'd be neat. Uh, Or if they're doing uh, taking ketones, which they don't do for me in our program for into the second month, we just focus on glucose for a while. So what are the correlations there? So it's interesting. And more than a few people, I would almost say across the board, it's a bit tedious to do this, but you can print out the reports and make a nice graph and circle the points and all this other stuff, is that actually having a higher fat diet even though these people were overweight, so they had their own reserve. It was there. They found that having higher fat in their diet, they didn't find, I found it for them by looking at these reports, that higher fat was, when they got to a certain point, was correlated with weight loss. And in fact, that was the only thing that, you know, we have them go through fasting phases as well. And, you know, you get to see, you know, the drop off and, and so on, but it's fat it's the fairly high level, higher than they were before they were keto, for sure, correlated with their weight loss, with their net, you know, with their weight. We just do weight loss and don't really make the difference between fat, though they can, and water. Separate issue. So that's an aha. So if I didn't have that set of data for me, and whoever these individual people were, that I'd go, yep, I totally buy that. You know... Just keep your fat down, keep your carbs down, and have your protein. Well, I don't, you know, so there's a the disagreement. I would like to believe that. I have not seen that to be true. And I really like to drill down to see these correlations. So uh people can say certain things, but I like to have a little deeper understanding of why these things come about. And is that always true? So there's that. So that we call that a controversy. Do you just drop your fat and burn the fat off? If I was to elaborate what I found that, and I don't have enough data to sort of say, this is now etched in stone in my mind. And that would be that after a couple months of high fat diet, low carb, high fat, moderate protein, and if they really are carnivore, and people usually just don't jump on carnivore if they haven't even done keto. But if, even when they go to carnivore, just say, hey, eat the protein until you're, till you're satiated and you know, have fat until you're satiated, don't worry about it. But if they're eager to lose fat, I feel through the people that I've worked with that the first couple of months it really pays to keep them at a high fat percentage, you know, within the percentage calculated by a ketogenic diet, right? 20 grams of fat, and 1.5 to uh, 1.5 to two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. That's how I calculate it. So if they did that, I would see a weight loss. Some people have a problem of coming into keto and going, I got to eat more fat. I want to lose fat. I got to eat more fat and I have to lose fat. You're a crazy person. And then eventually I wear them down. Probably because they're paying for a course <laughs> even now with us. I wear them down and they see the light. They get into increasing their fats They hold on to that for a couple months. And then I say, do what you want. You don't have to sort of do this academic thing of increasing your fats on a daily basis. And that seems to work out. So I think this idea of being fat adapted, in my words now, is boxing in your metabolism. So it has to be fat adapted. And it doesn't happen in a week. You'll start producing ketones in a week, but that doesn't mean you're fat adapted. It means you're producing ketones and that's a start in the right direction. The complexities is much larger than that in my mind, in my view. So I think if you box it in, say, "Hey, for two months we're going to be in a fat, high fat diet, and you most likely will be losing weight, so you'll be happy about that." And then, and but the, the hard part of that is really encouraging people. We're going to have to step up to it. Yes, we're going to have to step up to having more fat. Let's go do it. And I really discourage them about having dairy and discourage them about having nuts. Um, so the in for a couple months, then you can drop the fat. I think that's going to be the reality that um, I have, we've seen initially now, I have to track people out, you know, six months and a year and so on and so forth. So that should be interesting. But that's my belief. And I think that that's a truism. So I, I politely disagree by saying this idea of drop your fats, just worry, just, you know, have a lot of protein. This is now in the carnivore arena that that's fine. It's probably fine if you're having things like ribeye that are very fatty meats or you're having liver, which is a fatty organ, or if you're having other fatty organs, if you're having brain, few people have brain. I do know at least one and you can get that in the South. big brain, by the way, not cow brain. And so these are fatty organs. And so you're probably getting a fairly high fat if you have your organ meats. Most people do not eat that way. We've lost though that interest, that cultural interest of saying, Oh my gosh, this is a fatty organ, let me just get at it. It's what I've been waiting for. You know, the kill has come home. So most people just eat meat. And and meat is actually a very most meat is lean and they've even been habituated into cutting off the fat of their meat. Imagine that. So you're having to change all that. So the degree they actually were a carnivore and had fatty organs, they they're probably on a pretty high fat diet anyway. And I think that's where where therein lies reality. So if you're just going to have muscle meat, I think you're going to have a problem if you're not having fatty pieces like the ribeye, I think is the fattest. And uh, then after that, I strongly encourage people to get into liver, make that taste good, make your liver worst. buy your liver worst. better to make it, it's easy to make. So there's that. So that was the issue. Don't have fat or have fat when you're into keto. I think having fat is part of that. So the other thing is about what they call MCT oils. So this topic two, MCT oils. Why have MCT oils? So MCT oils, coconut MCT oil is C eight and C10 for the most part. It's about 50-50 or maybe a little more C eight. And certainly our product is a C eight, MCT oil, exclusively C eight. So no doubt, nobody's saying, hey, that doesn't produce ketones. C8 is is talk about efficient. That that in essence is as efficient or more efficient than an exogenous ketone. Don't believe me? This isn't an ad. Take some, measure your ketones. Within 15 minutes, you'll see it go up. So that's yawningly, excuse me, that's yawningly new news. It's just not new at all. So, but, but, for everybody having more ketones going to give them that mental clarity and if you're Alzheimer's, it's a great thing for all the neurological diseases, all the autoimmune diseases you bet baby you have MCT or C8 and you mix it in don't just drink this stuff and don't ever have fat straight don't be don't be dumb don't be dumb don't be dumb Don't have fat straight mix it in so if you're going to have C8, put it on something we put it on I put it on my meat what else is there to put it on anymore? Well, in our mayo and sometimes even add it to that. But um, it is a point to consider that if you are taking something that is making ketones, then should your body, will your body then resort to using your fat that is on your body, the fat that you want to lose? Will it be taking that to make ketones? What they do know is this. They do know in the world of exogenous ketones, which is the synthetic one ketone only, the synthetic BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate, that they, those who take BHB, exogenous ketone for weight loss, does not work. Does not work. It doesn't mean they don't get elevated levels of ketones in their blood. It's good for all those other things that I just mentioned. And certainly there's a value for that. Epilepsy, neurological diseases, Alzheimer's, mental clarity, etc. However, is it obstructing or impairing your body's ability to access your fat so you can make your ketones for you? That's, since they know that about exogenous ketones, then that begs the question of, well, would MC, is MCT... C8, C10, even C12 to an extent, aren't those kind of exogenous ketones? And I don't know. What I knew, know is, by themselves, they are not exogenous ketones. You take them, and your body digests them, go into your blood. C8 goes right into your blood, from your, and it goes right to your liver, and your liver transforms the C8 into ketones, which is different than taking BHP. It doesn't need to be worked on at all by anybody. It is BHP, goes into your bloodstream, and you have instant ketones. And so therefore, it's a feedback mechanism that shuts down your liver from producing ketones. Are you following that? So in other words, you're you're taking the thing that you want to make, so why is your body going to say, I think I'll make some too? And by the way, that's a a general rule of supplements is that, let's say, uh, there's a gentleman taking melatonin because he wants to sleep. Sounds good. But if you're not deficient in melatonin and you take more melatonin, that could be a problem. And your body gets a feedback and says, you know, I only need X amount of melatonin. I I know my range. You're giving me X. I know the amount that I need. So I'm going to subtract. It has feedback. I'm going to subtract what you're taking and I'm going to produce less melatonin. So that's fine. You're still in the normal range, but you're not like getting a bigger hit. Initially you will, but your body adapts to it and produces less. So now you stop taking melatonin. What happens? Well, for a while, you're going to be deficient in melatonin because you've trained your body to produce less because you were taking some to help that whole situation. So that goes over every Every vitamin and nutrient that you're taking, that unless you're deficient, you start taking something that your body gets feedback. It's not stupid. It doesn't say, hey, we're going to go 150% of B6, B12, B2, B1 it then cuts back it tries to still stay within that like a thermostat it tries to stay within that range so what happens though is that it's not always though perfect that you when you have a deficiency and you take something to fill that deficiency you then over time become excess your body compensates by dropping its own production and if you don't keep taking it you know if you stop taking it you're going to then have this what they call rebound deficiency hope that wasn't too complicated. Let me give you another simple uh, explanation. Vitamin C. You take vitamin C. Everybody used to take vitamin C a lot. Some people still do. Um, You need a lot less vitamin C, by the way, when you're on keto. You drop your sugar, you need less. Isn't it amazing? You drop your glucose, your, your carbohydrate, and your vitamin C requirement goes down. Anyway, so you take your vitamin C, and you had canker sores and so on, and your canker sores went away. Then you ran out of vitamin C on one day. You know, you're taking a couple thousand units, maybe even 5,000 units a day. People have taken up to 50,000 units a day. It's water soluble, but still your body gets habituated to that certain level. And suddenly you ran out and you're at a pretty high level. You are going to get what they call rebound scurvy for the next couple of weeks, if not a month, you're going to be into a vitamin C deficiency that in part you created for yourself. And then your body is going to kind of self-adjust, probably be in a long-term deficiency, but less deficient than it was right after you stopped taking that supplement. So I hope you see that concept. So we're applying that concept to exogenous ketones. And we say, yeah, that's correct. I'm taking exactly that thing. The body's going to sense that. It's going to say, I don't need to make as much. Hold the production on that stuff. And the production of that stuff depended on your fat that you wanted to lose. So therefore, it slows down your ability to lose fat through the ketogenic diet. Is the same thing? So the first question is, is the same thing true with MCT oils, C8, C10, C12? We don't know. Nobody's done a study. Nobody will do a study. You know, the stuff out there is, for the most part, cheap. And um, so it won't be done. But it begs the question. Isn't that interesting? So, what I've also seen in working with people that are on various medications, there's a class of medications called uh, GABA receptor agonists. Fancy word. So, GABA is a, a gamma amino benzoic acid, and it is a neurotransmitter, and it is something when the, you are on the ketogenic diet not only Do you produce three different kinds of ketones? But your GABA increases. And when your GABA increases, it's kind of the tranquilizing neurotransmitter. It doesn't put you into la la land, but it puts you in a more reflective mood. So when you meditate, I hope you meditate. So when you meditate and you get into that sort of non-attached, non-attachment world, that your GABA has increased. When you get, feel that you're in the zone, your GABA has increased. You know, if I went on with more dulcet tones in my voice and read you a little story, the GABA in your listening mind would increase, not to the point that you would go to sleep. So GABA is the opposite of, so it's called an inhibitory neurotransmitters. It doesn't necessarily inhibit you, it relaxes you because it balances the excitatory neurotransmitters, which are for the most part glutamate. Glutamate are, picture a wild child or adult, an ADHD adult or child, whoever, running around the house screaming and so on and so forth. That person has a lot of, and very specifically, glutamate running around in their brain, making them wired. And you think of all the things like carbohydrates and sugar, uh, Mountain Dew, caffeine and sugar that will kick up their GABA and it diminishes their glutamine. So the thing is, people who take these medications, they take the medications, they hit these GABA receptors, it produces, make, forces your body to produce GABA. So now you have another thing that doesn't necessarily have to do with weight loss, but it does have to do with something that is also produced on the ketogenic diet. So if you're giving one of those, call it an end product, you're already giving that, does your body then have... A feedback mechanism by saying, well, hold the presses. We're already got enough GABA floating around in the body. We're feeling pretty good. Don't need more. So it actually starts to inhibit your own production of GABA, which means inhibit your own production of ketosis perhaps. Will it only inhibit a portion of it? So what I've found in a couple of clients that it appears that when you look at the, the, the data, is not so clear because the drug companies don't have to offer this kind of information. So you have to go to you know, the Reddit files and the various conversations that weight gain is indeed one of the things that comes with these GABA um, drugs. So benzodiazepines is the class of medications that GABA is in. And you've heard of gabapentin. So gabapentin is also called Neurontin. So it's used for pain and so on and so forth. So when you think you're blissed out and you're not in pain, well, that's part of the side effects, positive side effects of having elevated GABA and decreased or balanced glutamate. So that wasn't that complicated. So now you are now you know there's this question. So this is the question I ask myself. I mean, we have a product that I feel pretty proud of um, that we spent all that time sourcing and so on and so forth. So the question that comes in my mind is: It appropriate for weight loss? So we've run various experiments on ourselves, Judy and myself, and sort of done non C eight for a while. You know, no C eight in any of our coffee. Usually, it's a it was only a noon coffee it was kind of the ritual. Oh, I think we've stopped that now for a couple months. So if we have coffee, it's just coffee. I've even pulled back on my stevia that I. It's almost a homeopathic stevia. Now I have some stevia. She can have black. Good for her. Um, and just backed off to see what effects those are. I, I have no black or white. It's not like, oh my gosh, I've lost all this weight. I didn't have a lot of weight to, to lose. But I like playing around with some of these things. I like playing, say, with, you know, you take that away for a same period of time. Do I notice anything? And one thing I can speak from my experience, this is now an N of one, is that when I, especially after the conference, having no veggies, my gut feels great. And that whole bloating thing, interesting. I've also come to question, well, I'm going to hold some of these other questions I have um, for future topics because they're kind of, look how long it took me to get into this one, right? Oh yeah, one of the other topics is, how do you measure protein requirement. Well, if anybody's in our group, they'll see in the file section, I guess it was about a month or so ago, I basically said, here's how you calculate your macros. And I believe, I guess I'm old school or I'm just too old now, that I like people doing it manually. They know what's going on. Don't go, hey, here's my app. I use the app on Johnny's website. Oh, don't you think you should know how to, you know, calculate your apps? You can go to, once you calculate your apps manually, calculate your macros manually, you now know what is reasonable. So if you go to somebody's app, you can tell if they're correct or not. So that's my prejudice. And I push on everybody that we, that we coach and in our group that do this manually. Anyway, so I do a did a, a document that says, here's how you calculate macros. Here's how you calculate your protein. And I did it both ways. I did it. I said the range is between 1.5 and 2 grams of protein. kilogram of body weight. So you take your body weight in pounds, you divide it by 2.2 because it's 2.2 pounds per kilograms. You get your body weight in kilograms and then you times that by 1.5 to 2 and you'll see your range of protein. And then I did the other way, the alternative way of calculating protein is 0.8 times your lean body mass. And I explained this in my document as well, because it was a fair question somebody asked. Because guys more sophisticated when you did 0.8 grams of protein times lean body mass. And where do you get lean body mass? Lean body mass, you get off a lot of weight scales and bioimpedance analysis, which we certainly used to do in the office, but now people get that capability and some of these nice scales that um, cost 60 to a couple hundred dollars, depending what you want to pay. But pretty fancy. And you can see it on your phone. In fact, you can track it on your computer and it separates out water to fat. And So staying on track. So your lean body mass is your bones. It's your muscle, which is really what you wanted to know. And it's all of your viscera. So all of your esophagus, your stomach, your intestines, your spleen, your liver, all that. So that's all your lean body tissue. So that number varies a lot. If you measure that number after you fasted for 12 hours or 16 hours or even a couple of days, you're going to have basically an empty gut, right? You've digested everything and you've pooped it out. So your your lean body mass is going to be dramatically smaller, dramatically lower. So there's that aspect. The other part is you're really only interested in just your muscle mass and we don't have a mechanism that says your muscle mass exclusively is X that would be really great if we could do that because then you'd have a very tight amount to measure protein needs on. It's not that your viscera, your guts intestines and so on and so forth don't need some protein but they don't need the protein the protein is mostly about muscle. So why so it's a way so I, I calculated it. I did it on a woman I think five five and you know showed how to calculate your BMR. And your BMI, and, and, you know, created it, and so we did it both ways, and the numbers were almost exactly the same. So I find it's just a lot more convenient and easy to do. Uh, kilograms, 1.5 to 2 uh, kilograms, right, 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So since they were neck and neck, I really don't care how you get there. If you think it sounds more sophisticated, go point eight. 0.8. Times lean body mass, good for you. But now I know you're on the right track, and I'm glad you're doing that. Either way, the other is now that I've we've sort of migrated into carnivore, is that I'm not quite sure how important it is to measure protein amount as long as you're getting a sufficient amount. So, but if you want more protein, I think your own appetite is going to determine what you want, and that's kind of where I am. I have not measured my macros probably in a month. I do it every every so often if I'm do I, if I just drifted off into space, and I'm not paying attention to anything anymore. No, I, I now do it by appetite. And we primarily have a meal a day and that's the OMAD. And I'm not trying to keep myself to an OMAD. We do have, so I actually, I don't think we do an OMAD because here's my lunch, which is more or less what Judy's lunch is. I take a can of sardines, I dump it into a bowl. I give the juice to her cat. And I add in a little apple cider vinegar and either mayo and or C8 and I mix it all up and that's kind of my tuna fish and that's my lunch. A can of sardines with some fat in there. And then I'm good. I'm good for a while. Then we usually have some meat and Judy makes up a big stash of liver for me that I kind of munch on throughout the week. So I always have that. So There we go. That's how that works, and we've sort of settled. You know, tastes have changed, uh, appetites have changed, and so now Judy and myself have felt over the last oh, probably the last month that we've kind of hit a sweet spot of our weight's gone down. You know, I have some fat to lose too. I'm not overweight by any stretch of the imagination. I'm fine. I think my BMI is uh twenty four or something, maybe twenty three. So. But and I'm not I think my percent is under twenty by a little bit. It always hangs around twenty. No matter what I do, it hangs around twenty. But that's come down a little bit. So I just think that this pattern it works for us uh, very well. So those are my little experiments along the way. What I wanted also to talk about, and I don't think there's really enough time to talk about it now, is hormones. And it's really interesting because now that we've been developing a coaching group and our coaching group is getting more and more sophisticated and we've offered it at a cheap enough price, but uh, these last few groups have had to pay for their own tests and their tests in themselves are $1,500. And so they did a metabolic panel, a panel I put together. They did an intracellular nutrition panel from SpectraCell. They paid for that and they did a, a hormone panel and they did had their genome so the genome, if you had your 23andMe, you pass it over to one of these other apps and it runs it through when we look at your SNPs, there's that part. And then we do a heavy metals test. And I think I'll probably be leaving out the environmental analysis part for our comprehensive sort of keto group. Because the reason why would we do all this, right? This is the question you have to ask. Why does so many need to do all this testing when keto is so darn simple that all you have to do is drop your carbs, increase your fat and moderate protein, right? Because it doesn't work for about 50% of the people. Why doesn't it work for 50% of the people? Are you going to say they don't like to follow instructions, they're undisciplined, they're uneducated, some sort of disparaging thing? No, I don't think so. I think there's other issues that make it very difficult for them to adapt their body to being fat adapted, to change the metabolism to be fat adapted. So they need help. So we found things along the way. It could be the side of, and there's there really five reasons that I found collectively, and that's why I like to test for these. But anyway, I want to stay focused on the hormone part. We might continue it next time for men, for men and women, some general aspects. And so one of the general aspects are, let's talk with why is it for menopausal women, so the average age of menopause is 49. Almost across cultures within a year or so, so postmenopausal women across cultures tend to gain weight. Why is that? Um, one of the beliefs is it is a decrease in estrogen, and so now when I see some of the tests I see from postmenopausal women, you bet their estrogen's down and their progesterone. So all their estrogen, progesterone, there, and their testosterone—all their hormones have Sex hormones are down. And estrogen, so you have three different kinds of estrogens, but we're just going to say estrogen in general, uh, has a lot to do with sensitizing your insulin. So, with less estrogen, your insulin is less sensitive. So, you tend to pack on more weight. You need to pump up more insulin to have the same effect on glucose. Consequently, more insulin stores away the glucose into fat. So, you gain fat. That's one theory. And it seems to be borne out pretty well, so that would beg the question. Well, what about the women that go on bioidentical hormone replacement? And how do they? Well, how do they do? Well, generally they're leaner. That's, and but this particular point wasn't really addressed. And the questions that are still up in the air, unanswered, about women's bioidentical, you know, hormone replacement, so HRT, is that well? Can they sustain this forever? It we had a, a few bad examples back in the late 1990s and early 2000s with the Women Health Initiative study that showed that there were elevate, elevated rates of breast cancer with women taking estrogen. And it was a bit mucked up back then because really the conclusion was women who were taking estrogen that wasn't also taken together with progesterone. So they call it unopposed estrogen. And there was, that was true. There was that connection. But that isn't the same as women on bioidentical hormones. All right, so there's that. So I'm sort of parking that interesting idea. Hmm. Take that. Life will be better. Maybe certain things will change. And women do it for a number of reasons: skin, libido, issues that have to do with sex, and so on. You know, vaginal dryness, et cetera. But what's also true as people get older, not necessarily postmenopausal, might have started earlier, is they work out less. So their muscle atrophy, what they call sarcopenia, they're getting less and less muscle. And so when you have less and less muscle, not just muscle tone, less and less muscle. This is measurable. Sarcopenia, your hormones in men, your testosterone dro- your testosterone drops. And in women, all your hormones drop. And so what happens if you had a postmenopausal woman that started resistance training, HIT, slow or slow, high-intensity training, which actually was the reason um, slow came into it was because they started with osteoporotic women and they had to go slow enough so they didn't want to risk you know throwing things up and coming back that they would be bad for their joints and or cause a fracture so they go very slow that's where it got, got started by the way interesting so now they realize all the other minor miracles that are created with slow high intensity training so what if they did this and they find that those women who have taken resistance training high, I need to call it HIT, high intensity training, resistance training, that their hormone levels have come up. So it's not just age-related, it's, it's the habits, it's the lifestyle age-related things that our modern world has allowed us to do, which is to work less, to work out less. And so consequently, these are some of those latent or later in life effects less muscle mass, drop in hormones, drop on hormones, increase body fat, especially for women and men as well. There's other things with men. So isn't that interesting? So that begs that question, you know, bring in these things. So some people, half the people I talk to want to know, all right, what supplements do I need to take? You tell me what I got to take because I'm not changing my life. You know, and I think all this busyness about diet, Oh Really? All this busyness about diet, all this busyness about lifestyle. Well, actually, it's important. It's important, very important. So I thought that was worth putting it out there. So when you start looking at hormone levels, it's fascinating. So I bring it back to the person because whoever I'm talking about, even collectively, I do a collective spreadsheet so we can learn from each other if everybody's willing to share. It's not embarrassing. And what we see is there's an age-related decline in hormones, but it's also an age- Uh, It's a hormone decline associated with activity decline, associated with muscle mass decline. And once you start having elevated, once you start getting fat, once you start getting overweight and obese, that further exacerbates the decline. Slightly different in men and women, but it's the same net effect. So you need the activity. That's a general statement. You probably knew that. That's not an eye-opening response. It's the resistance training and the muscle mass is a big deal. Those two things, and they will drop. And if you, they will drop together. Your fat percent. Uh, and there is a man who is taking testosterone. And the thing with men taking testosterone only, right? So that's one little hormone, is that testosterone in men, um, and in women as well. But testosterone, if you have too much testosterone and or conversion problems, we'll say. Uh, it gets converted into estrogen nearly right away. So it passes through testosterone. And so your your net measurable amount of testosterone is not very high. So that again is decrease in muscle mass, increase in fat, drops down your testosterone, measured as by blood, measured as by urine, in urine. So isn't that interesting? Get the muscle, drop the fat, your testosterone comes up. Could you, on top of that, have a, I would consider a little more comprehensive Androgen support, hormone support, just like with women? I think so. And I think that's where we are. But I think you can potentially also get into issues. Like This one panel that I saw, it was, yep, we could certainly see his, his testosterone that he was taking works. He was in excess, not just high normals, in excess. And that drove his estrogen into high normals. And you have three different kinds of estrogen. And one of them can be potentially toxic if it's not metabolized, detoxified by the liver correctly. So you get to see all these things. So these are some conclusions that make me realize how some real basic activities, building muscle mass and paying attention to your, your fat, wherever you are, BMR, BMI are pretty healthy. You can take some little supplements to help work in that direction, but I don't think your life has to be supplementized. The thing about taking supplement, you can start, as I said before, you go from a deficient to feeling great, and whoever told you to take the supplements, it's a god in your eyes for a while. And then you realize you're starting to get excess of that, and you're starting to have the side effects of that, and then your life starts to become uncomfortable. So there's got to be a middle, middle ground. I am going to end on that note. I hope you found this sort of almost stream of consciousness conversation helpful because these are topics that are certainly floating around in my mind that I think about. And, um, you know, they're not nailed down yet. So I, I, I love talking to people to have their own experience and I have to, for one, assume they're honest and don't have an agenda to push. And, um, then I have to match it with my experience, what I've seen people do. Okay. Till next time. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Goldcamp at ketonatropath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody if any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution and epilepsy and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto. And so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are are there other factors. So in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered um, certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered. And I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.